Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hey everybody, welcome again to Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. Glad you're with us. And we are here to have conversations about all kinds of issues that help us put legs on our mission which is to engage the needs of the world with the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of Scripture. So among the settings where we see some of the most acute and disturbing struggles these days is our school system. Uh, I know lots of parents and others in student ministry who are often uh, apparently in kind of panic mode, just scrambling for resources to help their kids who, in many cases, seem to hover on really precarious footing these days. We've taken this very seriously at Denver Seminary, and as many of you probably know, we have a, um, a robust uh, counseling program uh, that has uh, several different facets to it. Uh, but today, I'm joined by uh, Dr. Adam Wilson, who is a return guest, I think maybe a a three-timer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, welcome, Adam. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, Adam is a professor in our counseling program, and Liz Meyer Thornton, who also works with us in our counseling program, does some uh, adjunct teaching for us. And the two of them are involved in a recent grant project. Uh, you may have to correct me on the name of this, the School Counseling Mental Health Initiative. Correct. Or something. Did I get that right? It is correct, yeah. School ah. Counseling Mental Health Initiative. We call it the SHME. The SHME. The SHME. Okay, that that will help me. But <laughs> welcome, welcome say, Liz. that nickname there yeah, yeah. <laughs> makes <laughs> us distinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not at all schmaltzy or <laughs> no, no. schmoozy, but the SHME. The SHME, yes. The School Counseling Mental Health Initiative. Uh, so uh, Adam and Liz are going to uh, interact with us about what this is and what generated it and what we have to learn from that. So first of all, um, tell us a little bit about the initiative itself, the grant project, and that'll get us out of the gate. Sure. First thing uh, I would say is, uh, wonderfully, actually, it's not a grant-funded project. We actually are donation-funded, ah, ah, okay. which is actually, it, it might not seem like an important distinctive, but it is because what it enabled is um, we are a research initiative based out of the seminary here seeking to study student mental health. That's kind of our broad umbrella. Um, but the, the perspective is student mental health within the school system. And uh, in doing so, we initially, uh, when we were developing the master's program for our school counseling program, used to be a certificate, and the state of Colorado changed its requirements, and so we developed a master's program. And, and in doing so, um, we here at the seminary got really excited because this, this field is exploding. The field of school counseling and mental health within schools is exploding because, as you said, the unfortunate uh, needs have been exploding over the past decades. And so as, as we were seeking to develop this, there was a lot of excitement growing around what else can we do? Uh, because the seminary is, is working very hard to, like you said, engage the needs of the world. Well, what does that mean practically? And so ways that we can not just be in some kind of ivory tower, but in fact, just boots on the ground out there making differences and engaging. And in, in, in the relative um, kind of development of the seminary, the school counseling program was, was a new thing, a new uh, an arm of that, that hope to get out into the community around us. And in some ways, really unique uh, to be able to dive into the kind of uh, preschool through 12 kind of world. So in, in doing that, 
um, I was asked if I could come up with an idea of what could we do, what else could we do around school counseling that could make a difference, that could be helpful. And so uh, in developing this idea, well, I, I knew as a clinician, having worked with kids my whole career, that um, there is sometimes this gap between um, our knowledge base on what the problems were and what it is that worked or what was effective, what was helping or what could help. Uh, and so that was the idea is, is let's let's get into schools and let's just study what works. Let's study what uh, what kids are facing, what families are facing and what schools and professionals are doing to to affect that. So uh, when uh, when we got out of the gate on this conversation, uh, I made reference to the 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 acute needs that seem to be there in our uh, student population, our school system these days. And uh, from what I can tell, that really sp- um, spreads across the spectrum of school settings, private, parochial, public. Um, let's d- dig into those needs. What are, put some, um, put some legs on those needs that generate this kind of, the, that generate the need for this kind of initiative. What do you see happening in schools that might be different from what we might have seen a generation or so ago? for whatever reason. Sure, so as a current school counselor, I see a lot of this lived out in my students, but the research has reinforced what we've seen and uh, reestablished some of those ideas. One of the big things with social media in the past 10 years is that a lot of students have had access to uh, social media within their grade school years, middle school years, their formative development years, And rather than forming an identity or a persona of themselves, like we did however many years ago when we were kids, um, that identity is very externalized on Facebook or Instagram, and they're posting their identities for people to see. And it's um, created a disconnect in our students and also an impersonality in their relationships and an inauthenticity. Um, that's one of the big things that we've seen. We've seen other issues like a lower distress tolerance. Um, I think high, Adam. Yeah, high levels of anxiety in general. If we look at, I mean, broader research, even apart from our own research, uh, but if you look at the broader research, there's there's significantly higher levels of reported anxiety among not just kids, this is all of us, but kids in particular. Now by kids, give us a maybe a general yeah, age if, frame. Yeah, uh, 18 down. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there's there's research to show that this is a general trend among youth. Society in general is more anxious. And, and we want to be careful here. We're not just saying more anxiety disorders necessarily, you know, pathology, but more anxiety symptoms, meaning that people are more stressed. Kids are more stressed. They're experiencing and and um, walking around with more pressure internally and externally in some ways. And so one of the things we've looked at is that the pressures there connect to, like uh, Liz was saying, this distress tolerance or uh, discomfort tolerance is what we've called it in our research. A lower distress A lower discomfort. Tolerance. And you think about this from an adult perspective, if you're standing in the grocery line and you've got maybe three minutes, five minutes to wait, what do you do? Most people pull out their phone. Right. And when you look at that, just kind of anecdotally, you say, what is it that that phone is doing in that moment? Well, it is managing an uncomfortable feeling, Hmm. boredom, impatience, 
you know, whatever it was that it might be feeling, we very quickly soothe or we seek things to avoid that, that discomfort. And so what we found is, and again, our research isn't looking quantitatively yet at the effect of social media on fill in the blank. It's instead just what are the general experiences of, of um, students and around their mental health and educators around student mental health. What, what the trends that we see in the literature we read and in our own research is that generally speaking, the mental health of our society and our kids is more pressured. There is um, less tolerance for discomfort, but there's also more of a sense of, of requirement. So it could be around sports performance, it could be around academic performance, it could be around like the identity factors, like Liz was saying this, I have to, like people are literally watching me and I can count the number of people that like me on my social so, media. Yeah, and I'm really intrigued by that because when when a sense of personal identity is externalized, that means that it's as um, insecure or as uh, as tenuous as the feedback that mm-hmm. that I'm getting from that externalized identity. Is that That's a right. fair way to say it? And when we think about it, when we were kids, we had our classmates or our peers above us or below us that were shaping some of our identity and our teachers. But now students have hundreds of thousands of other individuals influencing them via social media, liking or disliking or commenting on their posts. And uh, I have students that are involved in TikTok or Facebook or Instagram, and there's more self-esteem issues that stem from that, as well as mental health issues, bullying, and we see a lot of um, mental health issues on the rise, even in our recent data with um, suicide rates in Colorado. Uh, it's almost tripled in the past 10 years for students ages 14 to 19. Hmm. Um, and that's a, a pretty significant uh, number yeah, to yeah. look at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in, in a lot of ways, when we look at the, the overall trends, it's the scariest things are things like that statistic, things that are terrifying that like none of us want to see happen, seeing youth killing themselves or, or uh, more suicidal or, you know, obviously the horrific things of school shootings, uh, these, these extremely violent um, or extremely destructive um, issues. What we also see though, this is part of what our hope is in our research is to understand um, what are the things underlying those trends? We, you know, we can say that kids and you know people in general are more anxious or there's more suicidality. Question being, why? Why is that? What is it that underlies that um, that would lead to a kiddo or more kiddos being uh, less hopeful and more suicidal? So some of what we've been trying to do in our research through with our partners and what our partners have been trying to do is to see it in, in some ways kind of reverse engineering that to say, well, what is working? What do we see that helps uh, kiddos or what do we see that is addressing the needs of, of these kids and families effectively? Um, some of that trying to figure out like where do we need to intervene? Um, for example, like suicide risk assessments, like being able to catch uh, kiddos who are struggling and then be able to intervene. Some of it, though, looking on the preventative side of things, like what do we need to be teaching our families and our kids and ourselves um, all the time, apart from crisis, 
that helps to build us as humans, that helps build our wellness and our, our resiliency and our emotional regulation skills and, you know, the things that will help us to maintain mental health as opposed to struggle towards mental illness. Um, these are the kinds of things that, that we've been trying to, and our partners have been working on. Again, these are the boots on the ground, and we're trying to understand that. Yeah, and I really want to uh, get some insight from both of you on that because I, I, I assume that a lot of people like myself can look at the, um, look at the phenomena socially and be overwhelmed by the complexity of it. And all you have to do is listen to a few podcasts uh, where, where these things get uh, diagnosed and analyzed uh, by people who, who are paid to study these kinds of things. And it, the, the, the uh, complexity of it seems to increase such that for the average you know, lay person or the person in student ministry who doesn't have you know, a specialization in this, uh, we wonder, wow, what in the world can we do that's going to make any kind of substantial difference? And I expect that a lot of listeners will will be asking that kind of a question. So that's, uh, that's what excites me about this initiative that you're leading is that you're really looking toward what makes a difference, um, both, um, well, preventatively as well as um, catching things just in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are you finding? We're finding a lot of fascinating information about what's building into that distress tolerance, whether it's parents rescuing children um, before they even have a chance to address a problem, or um, if we are looking at inauthentic relationships on social media, or if that child doesn't have an adult that cares for them, that they have a, a really good relationship with. Those are all factors that are kind of building into that uh, negative uh, view of self or mental health. But there are also factors on the flip side of that that we are finding, whether it's an authentic relationship with a teacher or um, healthy coaching that they receive from sports teams. Things like that are all investing into the mental well-being of a student. And we're excited about that information and, and looking more into that with our partners. Okay. One of the other things that we found, if you if you look at it, and you can see people very quickly these days, at least I do, and I think others do, we quickly want to blame something. So social media yeah. is a prime target for like, ah, it's clearly social media that has led to all this. And, and I think it's hard to deny that social media has that potential, um, has the characteristics of how it functions make uh, it kind of fertile ground for some of these issues to grow. So for example, the externalizing my identity, it, it, I mean, it's unbelievably potent because if I put a picture of myself out there as a teenager, you know, I do some selfie and I put that out there, I will get feedback immediately. And the human brain just loves that kind of feedback. Sure. Yeah. It's just like gambling, right? And you get this like hit back, you're like, whoa, that was amazing. Or like, oh no, I've got to change something fast. I've got to get a better response. But one of the things that is a, maybe a byproduct of that, among other things, is uh, this lack of functional communication. This has been one of those fascinating ones for me. Is so functional communication is a developmental skill, like all humans develop it. And it's, it's a kind of communication, a style of communication that achieves a goal. So if I say, Don, I need a raise, <laughs> right? I'm functionally communicating that I need more money from you, Don. So just, just 
just an hypothetically, example. hypothetically, yeah, where you clearly, ever say clearly, that kind of thing just, to me, just yeah. to have a friend who, but no, the <laughs> idea here is I communicate something directly versus like, yeah, man, Don, it's, it's hard to make ends meet these days. Yeah, it's tough. I'm communicating something, but I'm not doing it functionally. I am not directing my words in a way that lets you know what my need is. Because if I say, Don, I need a raise, you will say no. I can say no. <laughs> you yeah. can say no <laughs> or yes, but probably no. <laughs> so that allows for an interaction where you can see my need and make a choice in how you can engage my need. Okay. And what we're seeing is that kids, and this is reporting from the students themselves, as well as parents and teachers, that kids are not very good at this now. Uh, they're struggling more to communicate needs. So they might post something of like, it, I'd be better off dead. And, and the, what do you do with that? Yeah. Right? Even if you're a friend of a, you know, another teenager, like what do you do with that? And it'll get an emotional response. No, we love you, da 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 da, da. And, and that, that seems like that would be good, but it doesn't actually help the need. What's the need? I feel lonely, I feel hopeless, I need a friend, I need someone to encourage me. If I say that, I need to talk to somebody or I need a hug, right? I am Somebody can do something They with can that. do something with that. And so part of the problem is uh, families have become more disjointed in a lot of ways, whether that's multiple working parents or divorce, um, or just as good old Americans, we're constantly overworking and over busy. And so the ability to just sit and engage with each other in these communications where it's very direct has decreased in our society. What's made it, what's made it decrease? Well, part of it, I think, is just the, the rate, the pace of, of our society's activity level. You look at for youth, um, the idea of sports. You have three, four practices a week in games on a weekend. And then you have church, maybe in a Christian context or in a faith-based context, you have church. And then the kids themselves aren't going to want to just hang out with mom and dad in their free time then, you know, as an adolescent especially. They're going to want to be out hanging out with their friends, which is normal and healthy. And so the sheer just amount of time available to connect as a family has decreased, right? And then when we are together as families, as modern creatures, what are we usually doing? Right. Uh, we, we've got our little glowing rectangles right. um, in, in right. front of us. Right. Or we're watching a show or watching Netflix or something. So the the personal social skill development, um, there's that's a skill or those skills, I should say, only develop when we are in situations where we use them. You cannot teach social skills without using social skills, if that makes sense. Well, it sounds like you're talking about the art of conversation. Oh, absolutely. In, in an old-fashioned way, the art of conversation as a lost art societally because of all these converging factors that have sort of kind of refracted mm -hmm. or spread out the settings in which humans naturally learn the art of conversation. Mm -hmm. So, so we, we become very indirect in how we interact with each other, which means we don't, we don't get the kind of healthy interaction that we need as human beings. Is that? Yeah. And what's remarkable is, is we heard this most from the students. Really? It wasn't even yeah. the adults. Well, and I think it also goes to show that piece of the parenting that's going on right now. Parents want 
their students or their children to have something better than they've had. And so they're constantly looking ahead to that next problem and removing the roadblock, removing the problem. Think of my niece. My sister's always trying to think ahead of her next need. So when she needs a bottle or when it's nap time, she's queued up so that if she gets uncomfortable or if she gets hungry, she actually doesn't feel that for very long because my sister's answering that for her right away. And a lot of parenting has come down to like, let me take that problem out of the way while not allowing the student or the child to struggle and express, hey mom, hey dad, I need help on this math homework. They already are helping them or they're already solving the problems with them without helping them learn that communication skill that we need our students and our children to know about. Now, that sounds like um, what you were mentioning earlier, Liz, about this uh, lack of tolerance for distress. Now, and, and if I'm hearing you, a lot of this may be rolling downhill from us as parents, where we don't want our children to feel distress or um, have a problem that they have to resolve on their own. So we're going to resolve it for them. And it's, it's very much the same thing that, that uh, again, there's, there's an idea of distress tolerance out there. And it's, it's not exactly like pain tolerance, but you could think of it that way, like maybe emotional pain tolerance. Um, but discomfort tolerance is, that's the term we've been using within our research to explain what we've been hearing from our, our school partners is it, it has to do with negative emotions. Like if I feel negative emotions, I, I just, I can't handle feeling uncomfortable. Um, and when you look at a parenting perspective and I see my kids struggling, like my son is this, I don't know, little Lego master. Like he's amazing with Legos and, and he's doing like a 16 plus Lego, like 16 year old plus Lego. And he's six and he's, he's rocking it. He's doing great, but he'll get places where he gets kind of stuck. And, and I'll see the frustration building him and he just gets so mad that he can't figure it out. And I'm just waiting. I so bad want to go in and like, it goes there, buddy. Like I want to fix it. Yeah. But being the you know, dork that I am, I'm like waiting for him. Come on, buddy, ask, ask, ask. Right. And until he says, dad, how do I do this? And it's like, okay, cool. Then I can step in because that's him functionally communicating the need. But you just see his, his frustration and his like, he's disappointed that he can't do it because he's so proud of the fact he's doing this big old hard Lego. And so I think as parents, whether it's when they're babies, we don't want them to be uncomfortable, whether it's as they get older, but then you look at us as adults, like, what is that? That's the exact same thing. Our kids can't tolerate being uncomfortable, right? Um, oh man, you remember dial up internet? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You're right? asking the wrong, but of course I remember. Yeah, of course you remember dial up. I remember dial up phones. I also remember <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the satellite, the yeah, yeah. Zach Morris phones. So when you, when you look at that idea of how long you have to wait for your internet to start working, right? Well now, if your website takes more than like three seconds to load, it's like, oh, what's going on with the connection? This Wi-Fi is horrible, Yeah. right? Yeah. The impatience of this, this instant gratification, well, that's not just our kids, right? And I think we have this perspective, oh, these kids are so you know, ungrateful, they're so entitled. Turn the mirror around, right? Where's that coming from? They're entitled because we've entitled them or the technology's entitled them or whatever it is. Yeah. And this is, again, this is context specific. But we're all part of an ecology, a social ecology right. that has entitled them. Absolutely. And again, we're talking a very Western context and yeah. specifically we're talking probably a, a upper class, middle class context. 
this is different for different um, socioeconomic classes, what the experience of discomfort is and how much tolerance there is there. But it is key for us to understand that, that much of the, the anxiety and the pressure uh, that kids are feeling is, is coming from this difficulty, like I shouldn't be unhappy. I shouldn't feel sad. I shouldn't feel anxious. I shouldn't feel down. I shouldn't feel lonely. I should never feel lonely, right? And when we, when we think our negative emotions are dangerous to us, when we feel them, we, we immediately think that something's wrong. And it's just not true. Mm. It's mm. just not true, but that's a hard lesson to let your kids struggle, let yeah. ourselves struggle. Well, I'm glad you brought up the fact that th- this is perhaps more true of certain socioeconomic uh, demographic strata, not necessarily true or as true or not necessarily true in the same ways uh, once you get into other demographics. So I'm curious about that, how, uh, uh, what kinds of struggles are different when, when you get outside a more resourced, middle to upper middle class uh, demographic well this kind of strikes us right where we are as an initiative um what we know currently would be more out of the literature because what we the the partners we've had have been in more of an uh a suburban context overall late uh, okay. more, uh from the beginning what our next phase what we're really hoping to do is start to to push out into more rural and urban contexts to understand this we know that um, it's not that there's a lack of pressure because of the differences. So, for example, if we were to go up to, um, say, Five Points in Denver, which would be a much more urban context, lower SES kind of a context, we, we would be delusional if we thought there aren't pressures. There are, in fact, profound pressures there. But in some ways, those pressures might be different. It's more pressures around uh, adequate resources, having enough uh, educational resources, having enough... Uh, daycare resources, having enough um, you know, financial resources or even sometimes food, unfortunately, like having those, those resources. So the, the anxiety and the stress and the pressure, unfortunately, economically um, in recent decades, there's been a greater gap in, in resources where um, there's more on the upper end and even less on the lower end. And so what, what we have to look at there and what we would be interested to know is the student mental health within those contexts, how is it similar and how is it different from these more suburban contexts? Again, okay. there's diversity of, of need within the suburban context. It's not that it's all uniform there either, um, but that's a part of where we wanna go next. That's what we're excited to kind of uh, dive good. into next. Yeah. Good, good. So a couple of things um, I want to hear from you about before we wrap this up. One is to, kind of put all of this somehow in the context of the gospel. Uh, and that's not to spiritualize things and, and pretend that if we just you know, throw the gospel at something, we don't have to ask these other hard questions. That, that's not the point. I, I think we all would agree on that. Um, but as we put this, um, this set of problems, these struggles, what we're learning, what we, how, how we ought to think differently about it, how does the gospel help reshape our thinking about any of this? I would honestly say that uh, mental health is a pervasive problem in both our faith-based partners and in our public school partners. And so rethinking it as it's not 
a separate issue. It's a, a pervasive issue that needs to be addressed in all contexts is a, an important recognition, as well as um, there's a layer of uh, different approach that uh, we might have with a faith-based partner versus a, a public school partner. And one of the cool things that I've really seen Shmi do is um, build relationships. It has been a lot of meetings and a lot of relational building into our partnerships with um, big school districts, with small private schools. And sometimes those produce fruit, sometimes they don't. But those relationships have been really key in shifting kind of our focus, not only in our research, but also in investing in addressing student mental health in these schools. Okay. I, I would put in there, too, from a, um, a, the gospel perspective, if we think about um, the way we engage the world, um, I, I historically, I think at least there's the reputation, if not the reality, of Christians engaging the world with an agenda, a very specific agenda towards everything we do is kind of Trojan horsed, um, for, if that's a term, I'm not sure that's a term, but it's Trojan horsed with, we're going to sneak the gospel in to this context where they don't want the gospel. And, and I think there's something very inauthentic about that that prevents true, genuine relationship and engagement. And one of the things that we've tried to do in our initiative is to engage very authentically, saying this is who we are. This is why we do what we do. Here's what we want to engage with you in a collaborative process. It's not about um, seeking to push a particular agenda. Our goal is to help the health of students and to engage in a, a collaborative process with these partners. And I think in that, if even if you look at how Christ met people's needs, he he clearly was who he was and didn't try to hide who he was and didn't alter who he was. And yet he engaged the needs of people in a very real, direct, physical, emotional uh, manner. And that changed them or that created the opportunity for change for mm -hmm. them. And I think mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, um, as in some ways, as the church has become more and more irrelevant to the larger culture, is they have viewed Christianity and faith as less and less relevant, at least statistically, that would be the case. Um, the, the question of how relevant are we? Are we really truly engaged in the needs of the world? Are we truly engaged in what is going on in people's lives? Or are we engaging just to promote a particular um, agenda? And I think that th that authenticity is is core to people engaging collaboratively. Yeah, yeah, and the gospel is certainly propelling that mm -hmm. or compelling that. Um, think in terms uh, more specifically of of church communities, um, because even though your your work is in formal educational settings, the ripple effects of this are pretty obvious. I think for those who are working in student ministry, working with students within um, faith based, or uh, and I'm thinking particularly Christian context and they're uh, they're wondering what's my role um, what do I bring to the table as a, as a student pastor perhaps uh, or a parent who's a sponsor and, and a volunteer within their church's student ministry and they're looking at all this and they're looking at 
uh, intolerance for distress, and they're looking at externalization of identity and these, these various um, symptoms that you've mentioned. And they're asking the questions, what do we do from a God? What does the gospel bring to the table that helps us help these students preventatively? I would say that the students themselves and some of the staff advocated for authentic relationships. That was one of the key pieces of data that stood out to me in that they were craving the ability to be seen by someone and known and the ability to um, feel safe with that person and have a, a, a solid relationship where they were cared about. And I think um, student pastors, uh, ministry leaders are doing that. They're, they're building those relationships. But it's not just like a text here and there, how are you doing? It's a, hey, let's go hang out at the skate park or let's go talk about your breakup with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and actually have a good conversation about relationships person to person. And I think that's one of the things that the students were asking for. Okay. And I think if you look at... Um I, I'm not trying to make a profound theological statement here necessarily or stance, um, but I think if you look at the core of the gospel, it, in its bedrock is empathy, um, even from God towards us. Yeah, through the incarnation. Yeah, just a recognition Ultimate of empathy. Ultimate empathy. And so I think when you look at the basis, and this doesn't matter if you look from a faith-based perspective, theological, or just from the, the larger scientific data— one of the absolute most potent things that you can do to increase health, mental health and emotional health is empathy, mm. to experience it or to give it. Um, and when we look at the basis of what makes counseling work, it doesn't necessarily matter the style or the approach. It is whether there is a authentic, empathetic relationship established. That's the basis. Now, there's tools and there's resources and there's effective uh, skills to be had, thus counseling programs. Um, but the reality is, ultimately, if you want to help, it, it begins with simple engagement, empathetic engagement. And in the phrase I'll tell some of our counseling students is like, take your cape off. You're not a superhero. You can't fix it. You can't. We can't change these trends through our, oh, I'm going to come up with the one idea that no one else has ever come up with that is going to alter the course of you know, mental health in our country. It's not going to happen. What happens is engaging in the empathetic relationship with that student or with that class or with that you know, youth group or whatever it is. When we engage authentically, empathetically, um, you, you, again, you take off your hero cape and instead you just sit with that person. You just settle in with them in their life. Now, key is, and this is one of the things in a ministry context that we've, we've seen in our um, research is, just like in the missions field, a lot of missionaries will burn themselves and their families out through this lack of, of boundaried caring. Uh, they will give and they will give and they will give and they will give until they have nothing left to give and they're kind of a husk there and they fall apart. Their own mental health is, is depleted. And I'm always uh, brought back to the uh, verse Jesus is talking about his disciples. He says, uh, you'll always have the poor, but they won't always have me. And the point being that there's no end to the need. And so there's a level where Jesus was drawing a boundary saying, yes, there's, there's no end to the need. Yet they're doing what matters most in this moment, which is they're engaging in rebuilding restorative relationship with their rabbi. Yeah. Right? 
And I think that's key. We've noticed that in, in our ministry context that, that we've been working with is that having a theology of ministry uh, alongside a theology of mental health, what does that even mean? Like to be healthy in your mind, in your emotions, and in your body. Well, if I'm hearing you, both of you, this suggests that that those who do not have professional level training in all of this still bring a lot more to the table than they might give themselves credit for by by being willing to enter those kind of uh, th- those authentic relationships, those empathetic relationships. Uh, and again, if I'm hearing you correctly, by themselves having a, a higher tolerance for distress, uh, not feeling the need to jump in and fix somebody and make them feel better instantly. Um, that that is sending the kinds of signals that I th- I think you're saying need to be sent. A good example would be uh, suicidality. If you want to know one of the number one ways to reduce suicidal risk is ask them, are you going to kill yourself? Or are you thinking about killing yourself? Just asking that question alone will drop their risk level. Interesting. Because it shows you care enough about them to ask a very uncomfortable question. They know you probably don't want to ask. And yet when you do ask them, it tells them a couple of things. One, you saw me and you saw that I'm not okay. And even if they're not drastically suicidal, the fact that you cared enough to ask and the fact that you saw them shows them that you care, it's authentic, it's based in empathy. And, and they feel seen, they feel known on some level. And that just that simple question, and people are scared to ask you because they think, I'm going to put it in their head. No, you won't. You will do the opposite. You will reduce their risk just simply by asking. Well, yeah, there's something deeply incarnational about that. Mm. Um, and we could, we could spend more time talking about the, the gospel character of all this, but we're hitting on some ways in which the, the gospel and what's embedded in the gospel does resource our capacity to do these kinds of things, even to have a greater tolerance for distress or uncomfort with people. Um, so we're, we have to grow in those in the same traits that we want to see emerge in, in the students who are struggling for the lack of them. Well, this um, Liz, final comment. I was just going to encourage um, our partners in the, the community to also be okay with boundaries. We've seen a lot of engagement fatigue from staff who have poured out to their students and continue to pour out, and they haven't necessarily invested in their own mental health or their own spiritual health. And it's okay to have a boundary and spend some time with God in order to refill yourself to continue yeah. that authentic engaged and empathetic relationship with a student. But sometimes that says no in the moment so that you can spend some alone time with God or spend some time with your family. So I just want to reinforce that and re-encourage that in the um, broader community because it's important that you don't pour everything out, that you don't have enough to kind of keep going. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. We're not burning out. Good word. Yeah, Liz Meyer Thornton, Adam Wilson, thank you both for your insight, for all the work you're doing with SHMI, the School Counseling Mental Health Initiative here at Denver Seminary. And um, friends, if you'd like to get more information on this broader subject and particularly on our uh, school counseling program uh, within uh, our broader counseling division, uh, check out our website, denverseminary.edu, and you'll find lots of information there about uh, about our degree programs and um, other ways that 
uh, we can be of service to you. We, we certainly want to do that. Thanks for spending some time with us on Engage 360, and thanks again to both of you for carving out some time from your schedules to interact with us and uh, extend the reach of the School Counseling Mental Health Initiative. We're excited about what you're doing and hope to hear more good results from it. Friends, I uh, want to thank, as always, for everybody who makes this possible. We're grateful for them, and thanks again to you for spending some time with us. We hope you'll check back with us uh, again soon for another good conversation. Take care.